And um, I actually ended up, the, the team of surgeons, this was at Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, OHSU, the vascular professor, assistant professor, and a couple other surgeons surrounded my bed and said, if you don't have this surgery, we know we're going to be taking your legs in a couple of months and you'll be dead in six months. I mean, they, they give me the, the most dire possible warning that they could. Because based on their experience, that's what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. And I didn't know anything about anything at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, I signed out against medical advice, signed out AMA and had my cane right there. And because uh, I was walking with the cane and they brought me to the door of the hospital and I got up out of the wheelchair and started walking with my cane, not knowing where I was going to go, but not wanting to have surgery again. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. If this is your first episode, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for checking it out. Appreciate you being here. This week's episode is uh, brought to you by Baking Steel. Uh, so for those that don't know, um, Baking Steel was really my first official sponsor um, of the show, and it's because I had uh, the founder, Andrus Lagston, on episode uh, number 95. So check out his story. He has an amazing story. Recently, a plant-based guy, um, and he has a startup uh, in the Boston area uh, called Baking Steel. And basically what it is, is a newer, more badass version of a pizza stone, but it does way more than a pizza stone. So I use it personally um, since having him on the show and also uh, we're using it for my restaurant Rewild because it just makes the best pizza. It's an amazing gift, um, but basically you put it in your oven just like a pizza stone. Um, and because it's made out of steel, which is like a uh, one of the best conductors of heat, you can take you know your home oven that only goes up to 475 or 500 degrees or whatever, and you can make like that two-minute you know, Neapolitan style high heat pizza that you would with a commercial oven. So it's restaurant quality pizza um, at home. And I've been getting big into vegan pizza. I'm going to partner up with uh, Andres to do uh, a few different uh, videos around vegan pizza and things like that. So it's just a great product. And I love supporting other uh, local entrepreneurs. Um, and I wouldn't support them if it wasn't a great product. And I wouldn't support them if I didn't think he was an amazing guy um, doing some amazing things. So check out Baking Steel, bakingsteel.com. Um, you can use the code eatgreenmakegreen, um, all lowercase or E-G-M-G as capitalized. Um, so eatgreenmakegreen and you'll get a little uh, discount code when you check out. All right, this week's guest is Michael Harris. So... I just met Michael um, less than a week ago. He had me on his podcast, uh, Following Up Radio, which is an incredible podcast. Definitely check it out. Um, and as I was sort of like doing a little research before the episode to figure out what the hell I was going on, um, 
I started reading a little bit about his story and it just blew me away. Um, and after we recorded the episode for his show, I was like, I need to have you on. Um, and we literally, uh, did it the next day. Um, so we talk about his story kind of starts, um, as a 12 year old, um, in a water skiing accident, um, that he ultimately died, um, and then came back. Uh, so he talks about that experience and, um, what that was like as a 12 year old sort of rationalizing dying and seeing what he calls spirit, um, and then coming back to life. Um, I was just fascinated by that. Um, and then in the years that followed that, um, possibly a way he dealt with that was alcohol and drugs. Uh, so he talks all about his struggle, um, with that. And then, uh, at 26, he had, um, issues with his legs, the arteries in his legs, um, and had surgery. And then ultimately was told at 26 years old that both of his legs needed to be amputated. Um, or a few months later, they were going to cut him off anyway, and he was going to be dead shortly after. Um, he checked himself out of the hospital and then, um, as sort of a last ditch effort after some, some reading and research ended up at the Pritikin, um, longevity center, um, out in, uh, Santa Monica. And literally two weeks later of a whole food plant-based diet and some yoga and some meditation, he was walking miles pain-free arteries were clearing up. Um, and of course never had to uh, have his legs, uh, amputated. So another just incredible, incredible story. Um, <clears throat> and then since that, he has become, uh, a wellness advocate. He was one of the first hundred Bikram yoga, uh, certified teachers in the country. Um, so he's kind of a pioneer in the Bikram yoga world. Um, we talk about what he recommends for those, uh, suffering, um, with addictions, whether it's food or alcohol or whatever it is. Um, why you can't do everything on your own, the power of the mind-body connection, and why falling down is normal. Uh, this was really probably one of my favorite conversations I've had on the show. Um, just incredible story and an extremely aware and knowledgeable um, guy. Um, just loved every second of it. So really powerful story and message. And I will uh, let Michael tell the rest here. So without further ado, the one and only Michael Harris. All right, I got Michael Harris on. How's it going? Great. How are you today? Good. It's nice to, uh, nice to see you again. So for the listeners, we just... Uh, recorded an episode yesterday for your podcast and then yeah. we, we quickly turned around and uh made this made this happen because i i did some more digging in your story and i was like wait a second i gotta have you on mine so i'm excited yeah. to get the get the full details from the uh, mouth of the horse yeah well thank you for asking me back or asking me on i guess <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no i i enjoyed it yesterday and um yeah like i said i'm excited so um I think a good place to start is obviously where your story begins um, as a as a very young uh, kid, I think. Um, so maybe we can take it back um, all the way to um, 
as far back as you want to want to take before sort of that uh, that incident that I'm familiar with, and I definitely would love to uh, have you share it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, feel free to to interrupt me any place along the way um, in case there's something that that stands out to you a little bit more. You know, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, a, a pretty typical kid, and uh, we, we had a lot of fun. We we had a an extra large lot, a couple of acres, and dad built a baseball field in, in back. And so all the neighborhood kids would come over and, and we'd play baseball. And that was a real blast. And, you know, as, as we were growing up, again, pretty normal, you know, upper middle class kind of neighborhood and having a lot of fun and a lot of play. And then one day uh, we're, we're out water skiing. Uh, I was 12 years old and uh, I had just actually won the junior championship at Portland Golf Club as a kid. Oh, nice. And, uh, you know, all jazzed up and excited <laughs> about all that. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be a pro golfer and I'm going to knock these Jack Nicholas, you know, off his throne. You know, that's what I'm thinking as a kid, right? Uh-huh. So uh, we went water skiing one day and I was a pretty hot shot little water skier. And um, I thought I would do a beach landing one day and we're coming in pretty fast. And then the, another boat kind of cut in front of our boat. And so I got whipped and I increased speed even faster. Don't know exactly, maybe going 50 miles an hour, somewhere in there and wow. hit the beach just smack and um, head over heels. And I, I didn't have any apparent uh, external injuries other than some scratches and covered with sand and, and all those kind of stuff. But uh, by the next day, I was uh, in the hospital, and um, I remember there was like a big mound on my chest that because I'd been swelling up so much, and they went in to do some surgery, and I woke up 10 days later, and they had removed 60% of my liver, my gallbladder, cracked ribs, had a collapsed lung. Um, I died, and I came back. And um, that was kind of changed everything as far as, you know, the carefree kid at, at the time. And um, so I, I was stuck in a hospital bed for a while. And, can and I, I can I cut you off there? Sure. So you died. So I died. can you talk a little bit about what happened there? You, you had a near-death experience, obviously, of some kind. I, I did. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, in some ways it didn't, because maybe it happened at such a young age and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was, but at the same time, it was just like, oh, wow, this happened to me. But I got into this coma, you know, at that time, I didn't know anything about what the surgery had happened, but it came out, um, what was in my coma and I remember laying there in the hospital bed and sometimes my parents or the doctors or the nurses would say, you know, squeeze my finger. You know, I'd hear them say that and I couldn't move, right? Mm-hmm. So I had some conscious awareness when I was in, in my coma of people being around me from time to time. But I, I was in the coma for about 10 days and then the best that, that I could ever tell is my near-death experience came at the end of the coma. 
and I had gone out of my body and I was in a garden area and it was like a, this really beautiful garden. And it was like the energetic feeling that, that I had at the time was like, wow, this is really nice. And I, I felt totally engulfed and can't really say it in any other way, but this feeling of love and care that I'd never felt before. And there were some people in the garden that I, I called spirit. Um, some of them seemed to be in robes and some of them just dressed normal. And as I, as I was out of the body, I was having this, this talk with them and I don't remember everything that was said, but I do remember them saying that I wasn't through yet. And then the next thing I know, I'm going back to my body and I didn't want to go back to my body. I wanted to stay and I was reaching out and, you know, saying, let me stay. And they said, no, it's time to go back. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up and um, I'm laying there in this hospital bed. And apparently the first thing, the first thing that I said to the nurses, nurses was bike 30 days. <laughs> And then the nurses were going, what do you mean, bike 30 days? What, what's that about? And they figured out that it was before my water skiing accident. You know, I'm a 12-year-old kid. My bike went to the bike shop for repairs, right? And it had been like pretty much about 30 days since then. And I wanted my bike. <laughs> I mean, what else does a 12-year-old kid want? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that is, that is so fascinating. And I, I read a ton about near death experiences and things like that, because I'm just so fascinated by consciousness and, and all that. And that story, uh, sounds so familiar to the other, you know, people stories I've, I've read and, and, uh, heard about, um, leaving the body and some people say they're, they're with God or they're with spirit or however you describe it. Um, and I've heard a lot of people say that feeling it's like the first time they've truly felt loved and truly, uh, not judged. And most people from the, from the ones I've read, when they wake back up, you know, they say something like, why, you know, why did you bring me back or whatever? Because yeah. they just, it was so amazing um, yeah. and, and loving on the other, on the other side, if you will. And um, so, so interesting. Um, and I, and I, that's, that's just really cool. Um, and if, if, I, if I can add just a, a little yeah. bit to that as well, I recognized at some point that the garden area that, it seemed like I was in was actually on the grounds of the hospital. Wow. And I didn't know that it was there till later, but I also remember being there with the spirit and having the feeling like around the hospital, there were more spirits and that some of those spirits around the hospital that I was at were people that had actually passed away, but were still around the hospital. You know, they had died within the hospital and they were still doing whatever work that they, they were still doing. Um, wow. So, yeah, as, as I dive deeper into it, it, it's really a profound experience in, in my life. And, you know, the, the other thing, too, is, you know, it's just like, 
you know, I, I was told as, as well the, the phrase, um, everything's going to be okay. Mm. And I still remember that sometimes today when, when I go through challenges or struggles, it's like that, you know, those type of, you know, moments in life that seem to, you know, kind of suck a little bit at times, right? It's just like, oh, yeah, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. So it's like a mini mantra in a way. Mm, I love it. So, I mean, as a 12-year-old, right? I mean, you you say all you wanted to do is, you know, get the bike back and start being a kid again. But, like, I can't even imagine rationalizing an event like that as a 12-year-old kid. You know, I think if it happened to me now, I'd have a, a very different perspective. But as a 12-year-old, I mean, how did you deal with that all happening? Well, it, it was really hard. And um, I always had a belief in God, even prior to, to that experience. But I really, in many ways, became angry and became angry that this had happened to me and that how could God have allowed this to happen to me and how could God let me come back to my body? Mm. And so I went into a place where, where I felt really angry and my, my parents you know, they were happy that their little kid was alive. And so some, sometimes when I would try to talk to them about the near-death experience or having these other emotions, and I literally said to them, I feel like I need to heal emotionally. Um, again, they were happy that I was just alive. And, you know, that there was some work at the time, and they brought me to a psychologist that I talked to. It, I don't think it... it really did very much. And I really felt my self-esteem go down. You know, I was now the kid for, I mean, for six months, I had a tube in the side. So I went from the captain of the team, you know, growing up in, in school to being the last one picked to doing anything. Mm. And um, that was hard. That was really hard. And I, I felt really rejected. Um, you know, there, I certainly had a group of friends and uh, people in the neighborhood that were always there and that were always loving and that. Yet I kind of got a hold of the people that uh, rejected me and that built that anger that, that I was experiencing at the time. And did you end up making a full recovery physically for the most part or not so much? Well, they had done a liver scan a year afterwards. Again, they had taken out 6% of my liver. I used, I had 21 blood transfusions. So I went through a lot of blood. Wow. Um, you know, the doctor basically said he didn't save me. He said, I stitched you up and God saved you. But a year after the surgery, um, they did a liver scan and they had shown that it had grown back. Wow. So... When, when you have that type of trauma, as long as you don't have cirrhosis or some other liver issues, your liver will grow back. Wow. So I was lucky in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, so uh, please do continue the, uh, the life story from there. Well, my, my, my life became kind of wild. Mm. And um, I started smoking some pot. Um, and I started drinking, you know, as, as a kid in high school and, and all that kind of stuff. 
and became pretty wild and got in some trouble around that. And, um, you know, a little bit of, of legal trouble and, you know, trouble with my parents. Of course, they didn't like it and um, went through this for really a number of, of years um, until I was getting in, into my early 20s. And I tried different ways to uh, stop drinking and none of it was really successful. And was um, this a... So did you, it, was it, it, did you have a drinking problem, would you say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, you know, I'd, I'd get in some legal problems every now and then and um, that revolve around drinking and, yeah. and you know, all, all that stuff. But then something happened to me uh, when I was 26. And I started feeling some tingling sensations um, in my legs and in my feet. And I just thought, okay, well, my foot went to sleep. You know, we we all have that experience. And it it kind of went on, but it kept getting more prevalent all the time. It kept happening more often. And then instead of maybe just my toes or my foot, it was my calf. So more of my... Um, primarily my right leg at the time, um, I kept having these, this experience of it going to sleep, and I ended up going to a chiropractor. And the chiropractor said, you don't have any nerve damage or nerve issues or anything that I can do. You need to go see a vascular specialist. And I didn't really know what that meant, what that was. You know, mm. It was like a vascular specialist. Okay, what do they do? And um, by the time I got to a vascular specialist, my right leg, my popliteal artery, my right leg was 100% blocked. And the popliteal artery in my left leg was 65% blocked. Wow. And the course went when they wanted to admit me to the hospital immediately. And I waited a couple of days before I went back. But, you know, their, their first... Um, diagnosis was that they were going to end up cutting my legs off. And my first response, um, if you're young, close your ears, was, fuck you, you're not going to take my leg. Yeah. And um, so the first set of surgeries they did on both my legs, they did a bypass surgery on both my legs, um, which was I guess, momentarily successful. And then a month later, I was back in the hospital again with with blood clots in my legs. And eight months later, I was back in the hospital again, and they wanted to do more surgery. And because my legs in in that eight-month time had re-blocked again. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually ended up, the, the team of surgeons, this was at Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, OHSU, the vascular professor, assistant professor, and a couple other surgeons surrounded my bed and said, if you don't have this surgery, we know we're going to be taking your legs in a couple of months and you'll be dead in six months. I mean, they, they give me the, the most dire possible warning that they could. Because based on their experience, that's what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. And I didn't know anything about anything at that time. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I signed out against medical advice, signed out AMA and had my cane right there. And because uh, I was walking with the cane and they brought me to the door of the hospital and I got up out of the wheelchair and started walking with my cane, not knowing where I was going to go, but not wanting to have surgery again. Mm. So what'd you do? Well, I started for, for some reason, I don't know where I got it. The first book I got, I believe was a Dean Ornish book. Mm. Don't remember the name of the book. But then I got a hold of a book by Pritikun, um, from Nathan Pritikun about, um, you know, plant-based diets and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't really know what that was. And they were really using more, they weren't even using that term so much at that time. It was more vegan or vegetarian. And, um, I ended up calling the Pritikin Center. There was a Pritikin Center at the time in Santa Monica, California. And I called them up and I said, look, this is what's going on. Can you help me? And they said, yeah, we can help. When can you get here? So at the time I was living in Portland, my mom was living in in LA and I flew down to, to LA and Uh, She picked me up at the airport and they brought me to the Pritikin Center. And at the time, I was what I call wall walking because that's how hard it was for me to walk. I was holding the the wall, the outside of the building, and then holding actually my mom's arm. And it was maybe 30 feet to the corner. I wanted to look down and see the ocean. And so I could barely walk by the time I got there. And... I went in, you know, they did their examination and I talked to one one of the doctors there and he said, you know, I I really think that we can help you. He says, what I want you to do the next couple of weeks that you're here is do nothing more than walk up and down the boardwalk as much as you can. They're on the pier where Santa Monica is. Walk up and down between Santa Monica Pier and Venice Beach. and Eat all the food that you want. And this is what we're going to feed you. We're going to feed you everything except for meat and dairy. Hmm. And again, I didn't know much about it. And I'm going, what do you mean? That's all you're going to feed me. Don't I get some chicken or meat? And they said, nope. And they said, but you can eat as much of this as that you want. And so I started eating what were actually really delicious meals because they have really good chefs there and started eating this really great meat. And then I would go out and walk on the boardwalk there at Santa Monica. But I should kind of preface that a little bit. I'd walk 10 feet and I would sit down. There's a little like, oh, two, three foot wall there. I'd walk maybe 10 feet, sit on the the wall. And then I'd get up and maybe I'd walk 11 feet. And the reason that's all the further I could walk was because of the incredible pain that I was experiencing in my legs from the claudication from the blocked arteries, right? 
But when I walked, I stood up pretty tall because there was girls on rollerblades. <laughs> right, <laughs> right on the Venice right. on the on the Venice Pier, of course. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't want anybody kicking sand to my face. You know? <laughs> I, I wanted to stand tall, right? So, um, to make a, a long story short, within two weeks, I was walking two miles without any problem. Wow. I, I could walk up and down that that boardwalk. And just be fine, not have any pain, and stand up tall and talk to the girls on the rollerblades, you know? Yeah, and, and were they were they doing anything other than just the diet and walking? Or were you doing, you know, any type of yoga, meditation, anything like that? Or was it just walking and diet? It, it was primarily it was walking and diet, although they did have a yoga class. Hmm. And... I, I did the yoga class a couple of times and I actually, I really liked it. You know, it, it was, um, I would call it probably the most gentle yoga class I've ever been in because, you know, at the time I was really young and there was a lot of people 60 to 80 years old at the Pritikin Center that had had multiple heart surgeries and everything else. So you can't push them very hard <laughs> in mm. yoga. It's more like a gentle stretch. Mm. Yeah, as I as I mentioned uh, yesterday, the the book How Not to Die with Dr. Michael Greger of uh, NutritionFacts.org that I always bring up on this podcast starts with his grandmother after I believe multiple you know open heart surgeries and kind of their last ditch effort to um, keep her alive sent them to the Pritikin Center and she you know, lived for 30 more years and came out of there walking five to 10 miles a day, just, just as you. Yeah. 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 Incredible. And she went in on a wheelchair and, um, yep. I mean, I could have gone in a wheelchair, but you know, there was the wall. Yeah. And, the, and there were the, the female rollerbladers as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, so you have this obviously life changing uh, experience both, uh, you know, again, essentially being told you're going to die and then through diet and walking, you know, come out the other side. Um, I mean, what happens from there and, and how, how did that sort of experience shape the next years? Yeah. Well, I, I actually went back to the Pritikin Center again for another couple of weeks, which was just that much more profound and being able to walk further. And it was just like, I mean, I bet by that time I was probably the healthiest person around there, at least checking in I was. Mm. Uh, Cause I, I went home and, you know, back to Portland and I was walking a lot after my first visit and, and doing some yoga. And I became a really, what, what I call a hardcore vegan. And I, I wouldn't wear any leather and I'd go to REI and get some of the, the one inch uh, strap and I would make belts out of it. So I wouldn't have to buy a leather belt. Mm -hmm. I was going to the uh, vegan conference, the international vegan conference and vegetarian conference. And um, if you know who Howard Lyman is, Howard Lyman was there. He's uh, the beyond beef guy. He was the one that was on the show with Oprah when they were talking about hamburgers and the Texas cattlemen association ended up suing them because Oprah made this statement, it makes me never want to eat another hamburger again, mm. right? 
So he was on the show and he, he was a third generation cattle rancher from Montana, you know, that no longer ate meat. You know, this is 91 or 92 at this time. What, was, there a, was there an element of pissed off a little bit in there? Because during, I mean, during my personal experience, like initially there was an element of being pissed off that I had been fed what I felt was the wrong information all my life. I didn't feel it yet. I didn't feel that yet. Because mm. uh, the, the information that has come out in the last five years is different than the information coming out in the 80s and 90s. Gotcha, right. Totally. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, most of the people that were vegan were looked at as wacko, hippie, granola, right. crunching you know, like who wants to be around them kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it's changed right. dramatically. And even just the last couple of years, it's really great to see that this huge growth and this huge recognition of how important plant-based eating really is. Mm. Um, but I, I got to tell you too, you know, like I said, I was a hardcore vegan for a while, but then I started eating some sushi. Mm-hmm. And then I started eating some chicken, right? Thinking, okay, I'm going to be okay. And I ate a lot of chicken growing up. Mm -hmm. And then in 1998, um, I'd had a, a shoulder injury from doing a I started doing a lot of yoga and I had a shoulder injury uh, from doing downward dogs and jump throughs and Ashtanga and, and all this stuff. And, was going to the sports medicine doctors at Emanuel Hospital again, and they were saying, oh, we need to do surgery. Um, this was actually back in 97 when that came up. And I'd done Bikram yoga before, you know, the hot yoga, and I'd done Bikram yoga. And I thought, well, I'll go back to Bikram and see whether my injury will, will go away, and then I can start a strong again. And I did Bikram yoga every day for 30 days, and my shoulder injury went away. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to go back and I wanted to get in the most healthy shape that I could. So I ended up in, enrolling in, in the Bikram yoga teacher training in 98. And I actually ended up on, on one of the first 100 Bikram yoga teachers out there. You know, now there's, I don't know how many, 18,000 around right. something right. like that, whatever, whatever the number is. But this is where the, the chicken comes in. I went there and somehow I got a hold of the book, um, the Eat for Your Blood Type book. Mm. And I, I'm B positive blood, right? And it says in the book that chicken is the worst thing that you can eat for B, B positive blood, right? Uh, because of the, the way that it affects your vascular system and creates blockages and all this stuff. And I should go back when, when I had those surgeries, my blood panels were normal. My cholesterol was normal, HDL, LDL, homocysteine ratios. All of those ratios were normal. Even, were when, normal. even when you had the blockages in your legs? Even when I had the blockages wow. in my legs. Yeah. Wow. When my cholesterol was 150. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. But I never ate chicken again. And then, then I went vegan for a number of years, 
And then I kind of slid off again and I started eating hamburgers again. Oh, I can have an occasional hamburger, occasional steak and all of this. And I kept feeling more sluggish and sluggish and sluggish. So I stopped that. And, and now the, the past number of years, I've been total oil-free, whole food, plant-based diet. And I have really recognized how important it is at least for my health, I can't tell anybody else. I know the science is there to show it about the whole food, plant-based eating and diet. It's not really a diet. I, I don't like to call it a diet. And I don't think you do either. It's more like a lifestyle. Definitely. Right? Definitely. Diet, yeah. diet makes it sound limiting and uh, hard to do and something you're only doing for 30 days, right? Yeah, right. And what I think the average woman is on eight diets a year, eight. Crazy, Crazy. You know, and what, what's obesity? It's like 60% of the US population is obese. Right. You know, and it's dairy and meat and sugar and all these things that, you know, most of people put in their bodies. So how many years now, uh, whole food plant-based primarily? Five. Yeah, and, and what has it kind of done for your health and well-being and, you know, how has it, how has it changed you? Well, I should say whole food, plant-based, not oil-free, because a couple of years ago, I got on the, into another food group called, you know, potato chips. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of oil with that. Uh-huh. But I got to tell you, within days of not eating any chips, any tortilla chips, any of that stuff. Within days, almost overnight, I could tell the difference. Mm, yeah. And I hike a lot and, um, you know, I live at 3,700 feet and oftentimes I'm living between, say, 3,700 and 8,500 or 9,000 and I go hike in the mountains and it's just like, I felt totally different mm. once I, I let go of those chips. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah. So what, what other sort of, so yoga, plant-based diet, do you have any other sort of rituals and habits that you do to keep yourself kind of fit and well? Well, I, I do a lot of things. Like I said, I, I went to the, the Bikram trained in 98. I've actually owned two studios. I've helped train five or 6,000, 7,000 teachers. Wow. Cool. Um, I've done a lot of work. Um, I had a company called Yoga Business Expert, and I did a lot of coaching worldwide for yoga studios and building community and all of that. Um, and I sold my studios. I still teach, and I still do some travel and teaching and workshop type stuff. Um, so, the yoga part is really important, and I'm a huge believer in the 90-minute Bikram yoga system. Um, and without getting, I mean, that's a whole nother call, but um, it's a really incredible system. And so, I, you know, I still practice on a, on a regular basis, what I call regular, three to five times a week. Um, but each morning when, when I get up, I get up in the morning. I meditate for 20 to 40 minutes, just depending upon where I feel led to do. And do you, uh, do you have any, sorry to cut you off, do you have any like specific um, method 
that you use? Well, there's I, I kind of mix it up a, a little bit. Uh, my oldest brother, um, Bill Harris, created something called Holosync in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And Holosync is, if you're familiar with it, it's used the headphones and it's binaural uh, beats. And so my, my brother put that together in the 80s. So that's a frequent thing that, that I use with, with that. Uh, but I also just do some silent meditation as well. And um, it's a, just a great way to, to start the day mm. and really, you know, getting the, that connection to uh, spirit, as I call it. You know, that, that connection to spirit is, just helps me so much. And when I don't do it, I can feel that I haven't done it. Yep. Same here. Yeah. And then, then I do a, li- a little about 10 minute yoga routine just um, in, in, in my uh, bedroom and it's just this nice little 10 minute routine and I do some, you know, Delgado, Dr. Delgado, you know, he does the weight thing, you know. You oh know yeah, about- sure, sure. So I, I do that as well. Um, and then I'm a pretty avid walker and hiker. Mm. I love getting into the woods. The woods is like one of my happy places, so to speak. And where, where I live now, um, some of the trails are getting a little bit more crowded. We talked a little bit about this. And so I do a lot of off trail type stuff and I just, I'll just go off into the woods and um, I just, I, I get so grounded by mm. doing you know, but then I like the the snow will be coming pretty soon, so I'll do cross country skiing. I used to be um, pretty avid downhill, now I'm more avid cross country skier. Mm. Awesome. At what? So, at what point did you write uh, "Falling Down and Getting Up"? Well, people kept saying that I should write this book, that I should write this book, and I had written part of the book and. 2001 to right, right in that place. And I um, never really got very far with it. And then in 2011, um, something inspired me to write it. And I made a commitment to write it in 90 days. And I wrote it in 79 days. Mm. And I would sit down every single day and I'd write for one to three hours, a couple of hours. And um, I ended up with this book and um, I actually ended up, it it was interesting. I I was over in Hawaii on on Maui at a a friend's house over there. He was gone and he let me use his house and a beautiful place overlooking the the ocean. And um, so I sat over there for a month and kind of put the final little touches on it. And um, if you know Wayne, Wayne Dyer, most people know Dr. Wayne Dyer. Um, he lives on Maui and he's a, actually an avid Bikram practitioner, or he was when he was alive. And so I would see him down at the Lahaina studio. And I remember when he had a, a little film that had just come out called The Shift. And he said, Oh, here, have a copy of The Shift. It's just coming out. And, you know, he handed it to me and I thought, wow, isn't that perfect? Here's, here I am writing this book and there's this shift mm. that's going on. You know, kind of like one, one of those aha moment kind of things, mm-hmm. right? And so I put the book out um, and I, let, if I can tell you a brief story about that too, 
I was in New York City and I went to New York uh, for this media event to do some promotion. I didn't have a publisher at the time, no publisher. I was going to start submitting my, my book, you know, expecting 50 rejections, you know, yeah. whatever it was took. And at this media event, I started talking to this guy, I had no idea who he was. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a, this little New York um, gentleman, a little bit, I mean, he's 15 years older than me or so, maybe 20 years older than me now, and started talking, and it was on a Friday, and it turns out that he was a publisher and published like Henry Kissinger and Howard Stern and a number of people, and he said, you've got a number one book, can I publish it? Wow. So by the following Wednesday, we had a deal. Five days later, we had a, a book deal. And I was off and running. So I never really submitted it in the true sense of submitting a book for um, publish, publishing. Wow. Yeah. Just meant to be. It was meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And if you could, could you sort of, I mean, the, the title uh, somewhat describes the message, but I know you also uh, do speaking um, often. And can you sort of give the uh, cliff notes on, on your message? Well, the, the book and, and, you know, in quite honestly, I don't, I haven't really even made any money as such on this. Right. But the, the reason I wrote this is back in the twenties um, when I had, you know, dived into drinking and, and all of that, I was down in my dumps and I had read somebody else's, a collection. It was called Courage to Change This Book. And I read this book and it was mostly people in the movie industry that had um, overcome um, alcoholism or addiction, you know, and got into recovery and sobriety. And I thought, well, if these guys can do it, I can do it. Mm. And so that was a big trigger for, for me. And that all happened around my legs and all that kind of stuff that, that was going on all at that same time. And so I always felt like I wanted to write a book. So in many ways, this book was really written with the idea that somebody would read it and maybe whatever challenge that they were having in their life, it would might inspire them to, you know, make that shift you know, make that change. And uh, so far, I've had a a number of people um, that have emailed me or commented that that's indeed what it did. Mm. So, I mean, that that was my purpose when I wrote the the book is to have that happen. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. On the, uh, on the alcohol side, I have a couple questions. Sure. Um, Because I think it's something so many people uh, battle, even on a very small scale. I, I even think the casual drinkers are um, are could really, you know, use sixty days without alcohol just to see how it feels. Um, I, yeah. I don't think uh, it's just for people that you know so, have a so-called addiction. Um, I think everybody can you know, really used to, uh, check their, um, relationship with it. But anyway, did you go cold Turkey number one, or did you, you know, go to an AA program or things like that? And second part of that question for somebody that 
a friend or a family member is battling it and it's obviously a problem and how do you suggest people support that individual or intervene maybe or what do you sort of suggest on that front there's a lot of really big questions in there let me, let yeah. me <laughs> right, right now um so i i i have 30 plus years of sobriety congrats and um I did go cold turkey, and that's really the only way to get sober. Hmm. Now, is it uh, dangerous? Can it be dangerous to do that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, so some, sometimes people need to be in the, in the hospital. Hmm. Uh, you know, they have the DTs and, and all that. Right. Go through withdrawals and um, oftentimes need to have some support for a few weeks of, of medication to help them through that medical situation. Most people don't get there mm. um, that, you know, they're, they're, they're able to um, not drink without going through the, the DTs, but there, there is definitely a percentage of people that need that extra hospitalization. Mm. Um, you know, at one point, I, I did go to uh, treatment back in in eighty seven, and it it helped me, um, you know, get and stay sober. And mm-hmm. I I think that those are important things. Uh, one of my brothers, he actually runs some outpatient uh, treatment facilities here in Oregon, and my his wife, my uh, sister in law, she runs a women alcohol program for the last 20 years for Hazel and Betty Ford. Um, so the, the treatment and alcoholism and, and addiction, I'm exposed a, a lot to um, that arena, to, to, to say the least. And, um, you know, the, the other part of your question was, what do you do if a family member or perhaps a friend? Mm-hmm. Um, normally if a family member is, you know, I'll just give an example. Let's say you have four members in a family. Again, I'm just making this up a little bit. Yeah. And if one of them may, may have, uh, a drinking issue that is beyond, I mean, somebody can be a heavy drinker without being an alcoholic, right? Mm-hmm. It's what happens when you drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let, let's say that there's somebody in the, in the family that's having a deep alcoholic type issue. Uh, the best thing that most family members can do is to get help for themselves. Um, and then the, the way, the reason I say that is because that alcoholic's behavior affects everybody around them. Yeah emotionally and you know there's programs like Al-Anon which is out there which is really good family support for family members um, that are alcoholic Um, so it's really a a great support system and um, because there's that desire by so many people to you know drag that alcoholic you know into hammer oh you can't drink you can't drink you can't drink and it's not going to help. Yeah. It's just, we, we just get frustrated with it. Yeah. Right. Mm. So somehow we, we have to take care of ourselves. 
Yeah. Um, then the, the, the third thing, and I'll just mention this briefly too, is alcohol is a huge issue in our country and in the world. No. And, um, you know, it's, there's this balance between the marketing of alcohol, which I don't have any problem with, with people drinking and the issues that, that resolve around it. But I'll say this, you know, an alcoholic that continues to drink is going to kill themselves, right? Mm -hmm. It may not be suicide. It may be a car accident. It may kill their liver. You know, it happens way too often, like mm -hmm. once every eight seconds or something like that in our country, a lot. To me, and like myself, who had vascular d disease as a result of primarily eating a lot of meat and dairy, if I have heart disease or vascular disease and I continue to eat meat or dairy, it's just the same exact addiction as an alcoholic continuing to drink. Mm. And I believe in our country that, you know, that addiction part of, of that meat and dairy um, is so strong, right? And I mean, I have friends, you know, that have heart disease and that, um, are in statins and doing all this kind of stuff. And they know about all this plant-based stuff, but they won't stop eating their meat or dairy. Yep. It's addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, no, and I, and I totally agree. It is, uh, addiction and it's, yeah. it's very real. Yeah. Um, so to somebody in a spot that they are not in a good place with whatever it is, whether it's their health and they want to start eating better or they're drinking too much and they have a drinking problem or they just aren't happy. You know, they're, uh, they've fallen down, if you will, to use uh, your term. I mean, what do you suggest as somebody who you've fallen down so many times and just gotten up and gotten up and you're just in such a what appears to be such a beautiful place in your life now so what advice do you give somebody that has fallen down and and doesn't doesn't feel like they can get up or there is the other side well you know one of the biggest challenges whether it's alcohol or whether it's heart disease or whatever it is is thinking that we can do it alone mm. we can't do it alone we can't really do any life alone. We, we need help. So, you know, there's that, that personal recognition that um, at some point, you know, you're going to hit bottom. Um, again, whether it's heart disease or, or whether it's addiction type issues, that you're going to hit bottom. And that at that bottom is reaching out for help is vital. And it's hard to do. It's why so many people end up dying mm -hmm. uh, because they want to do it on their own. They know how to do it. And I, I got to tell you, I mean, um, I, I told you before too, like the cable company, you know, right. If I've had all these problems with, with my cable in my home, right. But I can't fix it. I have no idea. I need to call the professionals and even the professionals are having a problem trying to figure out and diagnose where the issue is to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. I can't do it on my own. My car breaks down, 
I need to get a mechanic to help me fix my car. Right. And so, you know, like if we're struggling with, with, um, you know, some disease and I use heart disease, but it could be diabetes. It could be any number, you know, 14 of the top 15 diseases in this country that people die from are food based. Right. You know, Um, we need help on doing that. On, on, on overcoming that. If, if, you're, if you're having an alcohol or addiction problem, you need help. We can't do it on our own. Mm. Um, so there's that recognition. The, the other thing is I don't know a single person, um, either personally or in the greater world, um, I mean, we can give any number of examples. Michael Jordan in the last five seconds as a basketball player where he had an opportunity to win the game, right? Missed more shots and lost the game than made shots and then won the game. Mm -hmm. And he would consider himself a failure at times because of that, right? So part of what I've, for me, the way that, that I look at it is that falling down is normal. It happens to every single one of us. And if we've escaped it, probably because we're meditating in a monastery somewhere in the mountains and don't have (laughs) any ships for 20 years. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that when when we do hit these bottoms, and like even like my book, when, when I do hit these bottoms, I can now recognize it that that was necessary for me to grow. Right. You can take a seed, you know, a seed. Let's let's imagine this this little rock is a seed for it to grow into. Let's just say it's going to grow into a tree. You know, it's a right. It's down in the dirt, a couple inches down in the dirt, in the dark, underground. Right. Mm-hmm. Before anything happens. And then eventually it starts to you know, break the ground and a little piece comes up and then it really starts to grow. But it has to be in the dark for a long time before it grows. Yeah. And it, it's, it's that mindset that, you know, and it's hard to, it's hard to uh, see it when it's happening, but it's just the mindset that it's happening for you, not to you. Right. Kind of like, you know, and, and I try to as best I can, you know, in situations in life, whether it's as simple as your flight got delayed or you're in traffic and instead of complaining about it and being down about it, it's like you can spin everything into, oh, wow, you know, who, who am I supposed to meet with this extra hour in the airport? What an opportunity, you know, what, what a beautiful opportunity that I get to be in the car for the next hour and maybe, you know, throw on your podcast and I get an extra, you know, ounce of wisdom that day that somehow alters things for the better. So it's, it's that mindset, but when you're really down, it's hard. And, and you do often recognize it in, in hindsight, I feel like. Yeah. And, and you know, if, if you're, say, say you're an alcoholic, very few people get sober on a winning streak. Mm. Right. It's because they're down and out or whatever's going on. Um, and it's because something has happened. Uh, not because they won something, but because primarily because they lost something. Mm. 
might be relationship, might be money, might be their license, could be anything, right? Mm. So nobody, when they're down in the dumps, goes, hallelujah, I'm down in the dumps. Yeah, this is great. Isn't it wonderful? (laughs) (laughs) You know, another year or two, everything's going to be grand. (laughs) It's not the way we think. Mm. Right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But now I know today when I have challenges in my life, I don't have those dramatic type of challenges anymore. But when I have challenges in my life, I can go, okay, what's here to learn? What can I get from this? Why is this given to me? How can I grow from it? Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what other sort of aspects? We've talked food. We've talked med- meditation. We've talked yoga a bit. What other sort of buckets do you feel go into being a, a person that is well? Okay, th- th- this could be a whole nother rabbit. <laughs> we'll have to do. We'll have to do round number two. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At some point, um, you know, through through my yoga, I learned this, but also through there's a lot of science around this too, about mind body relationships. You know, and there's a lot of really really good science coming out about it now day two and there is you may or may not have heard of somebody named dr sarno and in 1971 he was um head of clinical rehabilitation nyu medical center and was until just a couple years ago he passed in 94 um he was looking at back pain and was going if we're doing all these surgeries and three months later this person's back and has back pain in the same place that surgical intervention didn't do anything. So what's really going on? So he stopped surgeries, doing surgeries in 1971 because he said it was worthless. You know, the whole L5-S1, compress this, you know, your shoulder, your knee, your hip, and started recognizing that there was a really strong mind-body relationship. Mm. And that through the understanding of how that process works, People can actually overcome many levels of chronic pain, sometimes overnight, but in most cases, within a couple of months. Mm. Um, And so, again, I first started understanding this as a yoga teacher and studying about yoga because they talk a lot about this mind-body stuff, right? And then I started looking at the, the science behind it, and there's a lot of science out there that really shows that most back pain has nothing to do with structural abnormalities. It has to do with what's going on in our unconscious mind. It's an absolutely normal human condition. Everybody has it. Dr. Sarno said he had it. Everybody has this. And as this is bubbling up in our unconscious mind, it triggers some internal things with the autonomic nervous system and the central nervous system, et cetera that come out in different parts of the body as pain. And again, it's a whole show in itself, but just understanding that process. And as a yoga teacher, I teach more from that aspect. Some teachers teach more from the um, anatomy aspect. I teach more from the mind-body aspect. But I've seen people let go of 10, 15, 20 years of pain overnight. Mm-hmm. And so how, what, what helps that? 
Well, again, understanding the process, uh, meditation, walking, living calmly, being kind to other people. You know, a lot of these, these different things that we've already talked about can change that. You know, I, I have a friend of mine, and they work in a pain clinic here locally where I, where I am. And, you know, they do injections all day long, and they do these little minor surgeries and all these different things. And I asked them, I said, if you know about this, why do you do this? Mm. Why do you do these injections if you know it's a mind-body issue? And they said, most people won't accept it. And they want to come to us to pay for it to do it. So, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you follow uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza at all? I do. Yeah, yeah, I'm... I'm extremely fascinated by him and his work and um yeah in just you know the very basic example of that is uh the placebo effect right yeah. just your you know and maybe for a lot of people getting that procedure um is a little bit of the uh placebo effect as well they feel like something was done they took something to address it and in their mind they're telling themselves that you know, something's going to change or I'm going to feel better. Um, yeah. And whether it was the pill or the procedure, you don't really know, right? It, it yeah. could just be the mind-body connection. Yeah. And then there, there's another great organization that has come out, and I won't go too far in it, but it's called the PPDA. It's a Psychophysiological Disorder Association. And it was started by somebody named Dr. Clark. He was a gastroenterologist, or is, and was or he was head of uh, ethics at OHSU for a number of years too. And he decided as a gastroenterologist that most of the issues that people were coming to him for on the gastro side of things were also the mind-body. Mm. And he, he would talk to people, and oftentimes in 30 minutes of talking to them, 20 years of gastro issues were gone. Wow. Um, so he has this organization and there, there's, I have, I interviewed him too. So he's actually on, um, my website. So this is an unabashed plug, I guess, but fallingupradio.com. If you go there and look up Dr. Clark on there, you'll see his episode and, and listen to it. Um, and he also wrote a book that's called, um, what to do when they don't know what's wrong with you. Mm. Because, you know, people awesome. get multiple diagnoses, all this stuff, right? Yeah. And it's just like, let's remove these diagnoses that people have on them and see what happens. Mm. Yeah. So he actually teaches people how to, and doctors and medical schools now, um, how to recognize mind-body syndrome and mind-body disorders and, and how to work with patients around that. Wow. So interesting. I could, I could, yeah, I could do an entire episode, uh, ringing your brain on that, but, um, we're getting close, uh, to an hour here, so I I don't want to keep you. Um, but do you want to, uh, quickly just talk about, um, your podcast and following up radio and, uh, what led you to doing that and, um, just where people can, can find it and find you, uh, beyond that on Facebook and wherever. Sure. Uh, thank you for, for asking. You know, I, I was a business coach for a, a number of years as well in, in the yoga world, but I kept getting dr- drawn to the podcast. I, I had a strictly audio podcast for 
um, a couple of years. I didn't do it for a while, but I kept feeling drawn to it and to doing it again. So I really made the commitment last year to really jump back in and do a full-blown podcast. And primarily the podcast centers around some of what we've, we've talked about. Um, there's a lot of really great yoga information. There's a lot of really great stuff about chronic pain. There's some really great stuff about entrepreneurs. Um, there's some um, great stuff about plant-based eating, and there's a lot more really great guests coming on about that. Um, and the reason, like the entrepreneurs, I look at falling down, getting up kind of thing. Most entrepreneurs have fallen down before they got back up. You know, maybe they've a lost lot of times. Yeah, millions <laughs> of dollars in companies, you know, all these different types of things. You know, there's lots of stories of, about that as well. Um, so it's really this idea that no matter what has happened to us, we can overcome it. You know, and so the stories that are on or the, the episodes and the guests that are on there are all people that have been there, done that, you know, in, in their particular area and have some um, insights or experience that um, they can share to help other people. I mean, even like when we did a podcast and I talked to you about your experience I and mean, your experience is huge. And there's going to be people that will connect to what you said, right, and, and really go with that. And there's going to be people that connect with somebody else. So right. if we build this, this huge um, uh, podcast, we're going to get a whole bunch of different people on there where we are getting a whole bunch of different people on there um, that can help people. And so primarily that's what it's about, about being of service, about exposing people to more of these ideas again plant-based yoga uh, recovery entrepreneurs and then i've got what i call legends and luminaries i got a guy on there he was um michael jackson's voice producer for a number of years him and quincy did a lot of work together cool. another guy named les brown some people may recognize him um he's a motivational inspirational speaker so we're bringing in um, more of those people as well so it's really exciting to be able to do this and um, to have this broad range of people on there really sharing stories because I believe it's the storytelling, the sharing of our stories, our experience that can help people, that can give people hope. I, I totally agree. So followingupradio.com, right? Yes. And um, on social media? Are you on social media as well? Uh. Yeah, like Facebook, Falling Up Secrets. and Falling Up Secrets, yep. Yeah, Falling Up Radio on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just mention we've grown really fast. We're up to about 1,000 views a day. Awesome. Um, on Apple Podcasts, they said we were number 17 bestseller in philosophy. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's growing. Good for you. Good for you. Well, um before I ask you ask you one more, um, I just want to salute you for all you're doing and uh, the the many things you've overcome and um, the amazing content and energy that you put out into the world um, that I instantly when we when we were on yesterday uh, just resonated with and um, 
you know, having seen more of your content and your story, uh, I just salute you for what you're doing because, you know, people need to hear not only your story, but um, all the incredible information about, you know, being able to uh, take control back over their life and just understanding that they can. And I think for people, um, just the belief that you can overcome it is really the first step. Um, and you're not going to, unless you believe that. Um, so I salute you. Um, and, uh, thanks for having me on yours and I'm just excited to have connected with you. Uh, so, so one more, um, what do you want to leave my listeners with? Never give up and always surrender. Wow. <laughs> I could, I could, I could really right. ponder that one. I, I like that a lot. So, you, you know, the, the military has a thing like if you're a soldier and you surrender, what, is, what do you do? You lay down your weapons and you wait for their instructions, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that the same thing happens um, when, when we get faced with challenges. We want to fight it. We want to struggle with it. But let's just lay down the weapons, wait for their, and wait for their instructions, right? Wow. Because we, we will be given the answers if we allow the answers to come in. They're there. Mm. But so often we block it because – they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. You know, all that kind of stuff that we get into. But it's just like, okay, let's just lay it down and see what happens. Yeah, so, that's beautiful. I love never that. Never give up, always surrender. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Michael. That, this was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I appreciate you um, asking me to be on. And like I mentioned before, too, you're, you're doing tremendous work in I know that you're inspiring a, a lot of people, and that's so important in, in today's world to be able to do that. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely at some point uh, get on the airways again together. Absolutely. All righty. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.